Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Today, Jennifer and I will be discussing the 2016 novel Good Morning Midnight by Lily Brooks Dalton, which was made into the movie, the 2020 movie, The Midnight Sky by George Clooney. It was directed by him. He started him. I'm going to say it was by him. So there you go. It is a science fiction book. It's more of a fantasy film, but we'll get into that <clears throat> in a minute or two. But real quick, before we discuss it, we just want to remind you that you can find out more information about our podcast and listen to our awesome back catalog of over 40 episodes at www.kmmamedia.com. And our patrons have access to a special page where they get the episodes early, where they get to know which books and movie combos we will be doing in the future, and where they get supplemental episodes. And some of our supplemental episodes are very cool. Our Christmas story supplemental episode was very cool. Our, so if you were lucky enough to get to listen to that, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did not get a chance to hear that, that's okay. Make a $5 pledge to us and uh, you will have access. So there you go. Yes, Jennifer is here. She's just not saying anything yet. Happy New Year, Jennifer. Happy New Year, Kelia. Yay. Okay, here we go. Here is the recap of the book. Augustine, a brilliant, aging astronomer, is consumed by the stars. For years, he has lived in remote outposts, never putting down roots, studying the sky, and being a cranky sort of intellectual. At his latest posting in a research center in the Arctic, news of a catastrophic event has arrived. The scientists are forced to evacuate, but Augustine stubbornly refuses to abandon his work. Shortly after the others have gone, Augustine discovers an eight- or nine-year-old little girl, Iris, and realizes that the airwaves have all gone silent. They are alone. Thankfully, they have enough food and water and supplies, etc. to last for, well, forever if need be. So they hang out. They go for walks. They watch the wildlife. Augie thinks about his past a lot. He was in love with this one woman once, but it didn't work out. He lost track of her and the child that he accidentally fathered. That was like over 30 years ago. Anyways, he's made peace. Now he's a mildly concerned about the welfare of this Iris, especially after he gets sick and she nurses him back to health. And so he decides to move them from this observational area down the mountain to a better equipped area that will have more to do, you know, like fish, sit around, watch different wildlife, and maybe contact the outside world if there's anyone left to contact. That site has a better radio, you see. At the same time, mission specialist Sullivan is aboard the Aether on its return flight from Jupiter. The astronauts are the first human beings to delve this deep into space, and Sully has made peace with the sacrifices required of her. A daughter left behind, a marriage that ended badly. So far, the journey has been a success. But when mission control falls inexplicably silent, Sully and her crewmates are forced to wonder if they will ever get home. They all deal with this silence in their own ways. Sully keeps scanning in the comm pad. Devi, the youngest member, is losing touch with reality. 
Havan is grumpy. Tal plays video games. Phoebes tries to keep everyone happy. But of course, it is sad and depressing. Sully reminisces about her childhood and her parenting choices and tries to ignore her feelings for Harper, the commander. At one point, a piece of their craft breaks, possibly due to negligence on Devi's part, and Devi and Sully have to go out on two spacewalks and fix the antenna if they ever hope to hear from anyone ever again. It is a dangerous mission, and Devi's suit malfunctions, and she dies. And it's very sad, and rather haunting. The antenna does get fixed, still no signal from Earth, everyone is extra sad, everyone is extra depressed. Back on Earth, Augie and Iris have made it to the other area. And yes, lots of food, and oil, and fishing equipment, so they settle in. Eventually, he gets over his trepidation and accesses the radio shed. He scans and scans and nothing. On the Aether, everyone is sad. Sully especially so, because she was with Devi as she died. But then, they get close enough to see Earth, and it is dark. Really dark. Radio contact is eventually made. It is short and sporadic, but Sully is able to talk to Augie a few times. He tells her that he has no idea what happened. She tells him the same. It's so nice to hear another voice, even if it only happens a few times for a couple of minutes. Aether has now docked with the International Space Station that orbits Earth. It is deserted, and there's only one pod left that will only seat three people. So basically, three of them get to crash land on the planet where they might die from radiation or zombies or whatever, and the other two get to live out their days up on the International Space Station until they die. Neither is a great option. Augie, by the way, has been sick again. And this time when he wakes up, he realizes that Iris was never there. She was a hallucination the whole time. He goes outside, finds a sleeping polar bear, lies down in the snow, and dies. On Aether, there's this thing about drawing straws, but ultimately Thieves and Ivanov decide to stay on the International Space Station, with Tal, Harper, and Sully going down in the pod. The thing between Harper and Sully is almost dealt with, but then not. Except that maybe once they land, if they survive the landing, then maybe they can actually acknowledge their feelings. Maybe? As they hurtle down towards the ground, they aim for Texas, not knowing what they will find, Harper gets a tad misty-eyed towards Sully and, and as a sign that he no longer wants to be her commander, but be her something else, calls her for the first time by her first name, Iris. Oh my god, some readers say. So she was Augie's daughter the whole time! Also, the book has ended. That's abrupt. Is that not what happened? <laughs> and also the book has ended, because there. <laughs> uh, also now the book has ended. I mean, literally. <laughs> I like turned the page going, wait, there's no epilogue. No, okay. The book is done. That is probably the shortest plot summary you've ever given. There's a reason for that. Nothing happens in this book, Jennifer. <clears throat> okay, sorry. Yeah, we'll, we'll do the movie plot and then we'll get into okay. uh, issues. Issues. Here's the movie plot. The movie starts off with a date. It is February 2049, and I immediately think of Blade Runner, but then I get back to this. Okay. It also tells us that it's three weeks after the event. Here is Augie, brilliant astrophysicist dude who's had at one point discovered a Jupiter moon that might sustain life, but now he's stuck at the Arctic, alone and dying from some kind of terminal illness that requires frequent blood transfusions. He chose to stay here and die during the evacuation. He spends his day getting drunk, staring at the ice, listening to the blues. At one point, he looks at the map of the Earth and we see big-ass red spots of radiation. There's obviously been a nuclear event. He flips through the current spaceships out in space because he has access to that sort of thing for some reason, and he sees that the Aether is the only one still out there. It will be within range in 11 hours. He looks at the roster of Aether's crew and pays particular attention to a dark-haired woman. 
who, by the way, is taking soil samples on this Jupiter moon and getting abandoned by her spaceship. Oh, wait, no, she not. That was a dream. She wakes up. That was just a dream. Her reality is that she is Sully, the comms officer on the Aether, and along with a crew of only a few other people, they are nearing the end of their two-year trip to that Jupiter moon to see if it can sustain life. It can, by the way, so that's cool. What's not cool is they haven't heard from Mission Control in three weeks, and they're getting really worried. Let's meet the Aether crew. There's Sully. There's Maya, who was Devi in the book and is now our young woman of color. There is Sanchez, who's a bit older than everyone and kind of fatherly. There's Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Well, okay, his character's name is Mitchell, but I will probably just call him Coach Taylor anyway. He is the family man. He misses his family. That's his entire character. Lastly, there's Ade, the commander. They changed the races around a bit in the movie, but this is still a fairly diverse cast orbiting our white lady, Sully. Oh, and one more thing about Sully. She's totally pregnant like halfway through a pregnancy. Since the mystery of who's your daddy doesn't last very long, I'll just tell you that it's Ade and it couldn't be anyone else considering her other options are father figure and family man. Okay, so Aether's really cool. It's really, really cool spaceship. Yeah, I'm gushing because it looked really cool. Back on Earth, Augie has found a bowl of food he obviously didn't remember leaving out. And then there's a fire in the kitchen that he didn't start. And then he finds a little girl. She looks just like Sully, by the way. It's not subtle begrudgingly he cares for her learns her name by her drawing of an iris there's a bit of them together like he's gruff and grumpy and she's wide-eyed and mute and she wants to sleep in his room and well pin in that okay they do play with peas and it is cute because of the bonding augie has a flashback see when he was a big fancy well-known guy in his youth he had a pretty blonde girlfriend for a bit but it didn't work out in the flashback augie's blonde girlfriend's telling him that she isn't pregnant is she's obviously lying and she's breaking up with him because uh he's a workaholic he's kind of a jerk but also because the world needs him and she loves him enough to let him go or something it is stupid at some point later he happens to see her and her little black-haired girl and he declines to get introduced because again he is a workaholic and something. Yeah, okay, I guess. But this is present day, little girl, Iris. She reminds him of that path that wasn't taken or something. Because again, this isn't subtle. What else isn't subtle? Augie's outside getting radiation readings and finding dead animals. He decides they need to travel north to a weather station to use a bigger antenna to signal it is going to be a long and difficult journey. They prep, including face masks, because the air is bad. Don't ever take this mask off, he tells the little girl. Ever, ever, ever. And they set off on a snowmobile journey. Back on Aether, they're using the pseudo VR tech to sort of view slash relive bits of home. Maya is surrounded by her sisters, watched over by fatherly Sanchez. Coach Taylor is being surrounded by his family because he is the family man, remember? Suddenly, something happens. They're off course for some reason. I don't know if it was ever actually explained. Anyways, just a little tiny bit of off course can throw them way, way off because they're so far away. So they have to recalculate and recalibrate. And this will take them through uncharted sections of space, a.k.a. danger. In the Arctic, they have made camp. And now they can breathe the air, so don't worry about your mask anymore. And they have some more bonding and some more blood transfusions for Augie, who is uh, bringing his kit with him, of course. And the next day on their journey, they find a crashed plane or a helicopter or something with a survivor who is, well, he's an almost dead survivor, who whispers something and then Augie puts him out of his misery. He shields little Iris from seeing this, but she knows. On Aether, Sully finds out that her unborn child is a girl. The crew starts giving her all sorts of girl names as suggestions. In the Arctic, our snowmobile duo has gotten somewhere. It's like a way station or something to spend the night in. Irish is drawing her mom, and in case it isn't super obvious, it's the blonde lady that Augie is even like, yo, that looks like this lady I used to know. 
Iris decides to talk, and the big shocker is just as she does so, Augie wakes up, and their little cabin thing is flooding with icy arctic water, and he's sinking, and he has to save her, and it's very exciting about will they make it or not, but like, we totally know they will because we've all seen the previews, but it's a close call anyway, and he barely manages to get free and to get on the motorbike, but it can't get away, and down onto the water it goes, and Toad is all of his medical bag and everything, and he has to all give it up, and he has to swim for it again, he's in the freezing water, and they get to shore, and somehow some of their clothes are dry and somehow they do not die and somehow now they have to walk the rest of the way and how the heck are they not dead i don't know again maybe it's a fantasy movie <clears throat> they keep going at one point iris gets separated in the snowstorm and then there are like dogs or wolves barking and then augie shoots wildly and then the subtitles say sad string music because he can't find iris and he's scared and he's tired and scary and so he lays down and then the sun comes up and suddenly the blonde lady is there but oh no it's not her, it's Iris. And they hug, and they continue on their journey, and they get to the weather station. Hooray! On Aether, Sully picks up Augie's signal. This is very exciting. They talk. Well, they try. The signal isn't clear, and the ship is getting pelted by ice, and one of their antennas has broken off. They get out of the ice storm. They're very damaged. No comms, no radar. Most of it can be fixed, but it will be hard, and some of the fixes can only be done outside. The ship stuff is very cool, by the way. I don't know if it's CGI or whatever, but I liked it. It is Maya, Harper, and Sully out for the outside of the spaceship repair job. Again, the space stuff is cool. The crew has been gently teasing Sully about the name of her baby, and while they work, they play Sweet Caroline, which is rather cute, especially father figure Sanchez and family man Coach Taylor singing along, complete with a bum, bum, bum. Okay. Another ice storm hits them when they're out there, and more damage has been taken, but the radar and the comms are okay, but Maya is breathing funny, and then, oh no, she realizes that she's bleeding. They get her back inside, but they have to wait for the decompression before they can treat her. When they take her helmet off, her blood gushes in space, like space gushing, which is not real gushing, but it's like droplets of gushing. It's like fruit drops. It's weird, and it's gross, and it's like a whole different ballgame of gushing, and it's graphic, and then she dies. Everyone is very sad. And all that work seems for naught because no one is answering the radio because back on Earth, Augie's very sick. He's missing his transfusions. Aether has made it back to Earth. It is dark. It is freaky looking. It is totally scorched. Aether is trying to contact Augie again. Eventually he answers and he tells them not to land. The crew discusses, should they go back to the Jupiter moon that can sustain life or try to land on this radioactive Earth? There's more chattering and then a message which was sent 10 days ago, it's Coach Taylor's wife telling him that the kids are sick and that this is where she will be, dot dot dot. There are two re-entry pods. Coach Taylor says he wants to take one and go to his family. Commander Adai says, okay. Sanchez will go with him for some reason. He's going to take Maya's body back home, so off they go. To their deaths, one assumes. We don't know. This leaves Commander Adai, Sully, and the Unborn to go back to Jupiter's moon for some reason. Sully and Augie chat one more time and say their goodbyes. And because there is nothing subtle allowed, Sully really nails it home that she is his daughter by naming her mom and then introducing herself as Iris. He says he knows. It's nice to meet you, he says. And then he asks her to talk to him and tell him about the new Jupiter moon. As she describes the beauty of the new planet, Augie takes a mental trip, or maybe a physical one, outside to hold hands with hallucination Iris for one last moment before she fades away. And he faces the sunrise, or maybe it's the sunset, we cannot totally tell at all. And he's alone, and he's breathing in the air that is going to kill him. On Aether, the transmission has been lost. Sully, Harper, and Baby Bump fly off into the darkness. The music plays, the credits roll as they touch buttons on their control panels, 
And they one by one get up and leave the room. And we look at the screen. And it's the end. The end. <sighs> we read this book in book club. Yes. Do you remember who suggested this book for book club? <laughs> Are you retroactively angry at them? <laughs> I was angry at them at book club two years ago or whatever it was that we read this, but I just can't remember who. I'm a goldfish. I almost never remember who, who nominates books. No, I don't. I don't. I, yeah, I purposely forget <laughs> so I can continue to like people. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so we read this in book club and I hated it. I don't remember what you thought about it in book club. Do you? I remember thinking it was okay. Nothing like super special. And having to read it again, my opinion's gone down. Yeah. When I saw the preview for the movie, I was like, oh, cool. A George Clooney movie. And then I watched the preview and I was like, oh my God, no. Oh my God, no. They made a movie off that book I hated so much. And yes. Yes, they did. They did indeed make a movie off of that book that I hated. So, and so I suffered through. I read it a second time thinking, you know what? Now that I know that the ending is going to be so unsatisfied, maybe I can just enjoy the journey. But no, no, I'm sorry. I'm jumping to the end. Feel free, listeners, to just turn off the podcast. No, just don't, please. I have a lot to say. But seriously, knowing how it was going to end did not make it any better. No, no, no. Well, as I remember... You and I, um, and quite a few other people, knew that the girl was imaginary. Yeah, I remember... See, it's so hard to remember. I remember knowing that Sully was his daughter, like, really early on in the book. Like, that seemed overly obvious. Okay, the fact that that was the big twist at the very, very end was not a twist. The fact that Iris was imaginary... I kind of wondered, but he seemed to actually interact with her. Like she seemed to touch things and do things. So I was like, well, maybe, but it seems a little far-fetched and, but okay. Like it, it, so I guess it wasn't a shock, but it was kind of like, yeah, okay. And then I had that thing we've talked before about where, where they trick you, movie makers or authors trick you by not giving you enough information to actually figure it out or whatever, which I think is what makes it a twist. Although good twists, when you rewatch it, you're like, oh, there was foreshadowing. There was a sign of this. The movie did a better job of foreshadowing that Iris wasn't actually there, I think. But it also tricked you. And I had pin in that for Iris wanting to sleep with him. At that point, I was like, even if I hadn't read this book, I would think this is made up. Because supposedly was hiding from him for three weeks. But then as soon as he found her, now suddenly she wants to be next to him. Like it just didn't make any sense at all. But anyways, we're talking about the book. The two twists were dumb and were telegraphed a thousand miles away. So just to add, this is one of those books where we are in the distinct minority. Yes! People love this book. I don't understand. Okay. Okay. I have a couple theories though. <laughs> Thankfully, I found a couple blogs and a couple, a couple literary critics who agree with me. So that was good. Somebody said... On the internet, and I'm going to link all of these places because I'm giving credit here. But somebody said, people keep talking about the beautiful writing. And I feel like that's just, beautiful writing is just graphic writing about pretty things. Like, a lot. <laughs> I was like, yes, it's not beautiful writing. It's writing about pretty things. Over and over and over again. So, okay. Yeah. No, I, I had a hard time understanding. People kept saying that this was captivating. I read one review that said it was 
a meditation on the power of love and the bravery of the human heart. And I was like, they did not read this book. <laughs> because who's love? Or they're kissing up to get an interview. Who's love? Who's, who was, I, no, no. It does contemplate the biggest question, what is left at the end of the world? And the answer is nothing but death. So, I mean, we didn't need a book for that. <sighs> Isn't that like half of literature is about death? Sex and death? It has to be interesting. It has to be interesting. This was not interesting death to me. I don't know. Okay, so here, here's here's the breakdown. Like the characters, they were believable, but I didn't care about them because it was just info dump about them. So much exposition because it was this little... slice of their life and slice of of and they were trapped so they they couldn't act they were just reacting to everything around them and their actions weren't actually informing us about their character as much as all the info dumps were informing us about their characters do you know what i mean and they're both really boring like they're just both constantly thinking about their past which is great but you have to care about someone to care about their past does that make sense Yes, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. Like, the girl is sort of just, like, generic, sort of pretty girl with no personality. Yeah. And Augustine has a personality, but it's not one that is particularly one that you care about. Yeah. And he wouldn't want you to care about him. He wouldn't care about you. He doesn't learn and change. You know what I mean? So... Well, they do, but it's at the very, very end. I don't feel like he learned and changed at all. I feel like he was there to die. And then he gave himself something to do. His brain gave him something to do for a little while, which was the, the little girl, Iris, and gave himself something else to do, which was go go to the other radio. And then, and then, but then after he made contact, he was like, okay, done. Like he didn't keep, because he didn't need to. And then he was like, okay, I guess it's time to die. Let me go out and lay down with this polar bear and die, which... The polar bear was very confusing. I was like, is this supposed to be symbolic? Is Augie the polar bear? Is the polar bear also a hallucination? <laughs> was like because we saw Is Sully the polar bear? Is the polar bear like the polar bear within all of I mean, us? Yes. <laughs> but <laughs> the real <laughs> treasure is the polar bear we were along the way. No, I mean, just it because <laughs> he because there's a polar bear early and he's like looking at it. But there's also like a wolf that he shoots at one point. But then as it lays dying, it's like licking Iris's face. But Iris isn't really there. So like you're like not only an unreliable narrator, but like why? All of this is so confusing. And I just... And I just didn't care. It's like, okay, he went out and decided to die, to lay down and hug this polar bear and die. Well, okay, so for me, the polar bear is a symbol of death. And when he first sees it, it's this big, powerful monster. It's this big, terrifying thing. And at the end, you know, it's, it's something he embraces. I can buy that. Yes, death is scary. We want to avoid it. And then at some point, you're like, you know what? Come here and give me a big old death cuddle. Sure. <laughs> also, when we freeze to death... We'd get warm right before we die, right? And we're all comfortable and stuff. So sure, I can. I just thought that if in the hands of a better writer, that would have been made a little bit like we would have had like the idea of death, quote unquote, death, the bear stalking him a little bit more. It would have been, I don't know, not that I want it to be spoon fed, but I just I needed more than like we mention a bear and then we mention a bear and then the bear is incredibly important. And I didn't feel like the foreshadowing of the bear was enough to warrant the importance that the bear has at the end. Also, a lot of reviewers don't even mention the bear. So then I'm like, am I the only one who was like obsessed with this fucking bear? <laughs> the bear is inside you, Kalia. <laughs> so when I was 
kind of reflecting on this as I was going through it the second time, it made me think about the evolution of sci-fi. So early sci-fi novels have really interesting ideas, but the writing is terrible a lot of the time. You know, there are a few exceptions like Isaac Asimov, who is a decent writer, along with having interesting ideas. And in this one, it felt like just the opposite, where she can write prettily enough, but doesn't have really any ideas that she's giving other than, I'm alone, we're all alone, is the cosmic emptiness of humankind to be alone. And then to die. I want to send her a dozen roses so that she can put each one in its own vase, in its own room, so that it can be alone. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, okay. So the author, she had previously written a, a memoir, a collection of little essays, Motorcycles That I've Loved, I think is what it's called. I'll link it in the show notes. And I feel like she might be better suited to that. This is her first novel. And I feel like it's an interesting premise. The premise of a spaceship coming back to Earth as opposed to a spaceship leaving Earth is interesting, right? A spaceship coming back to Earth and Earth not being what it was when they left is interesting in and of itself, but it's not interesting the way she did it. Yeah, it's it's missed opportunities. And I know people are going to say, well, you're just mad because she didn't actually explain what happened. And I have to say, no, that is not why I'm mad, because I didn't need her to explain what happened. I didn't care. That wasn't the point. That was obviously not the point. Something had happened. Everyone was dead. Yes, there's like that part of me that wants to know what, you know, what happened, but that wasn't really the point of the story, right? So... So it's okay to not know that. If you're if you're focusing on why everyone died, you're missing the point. It's right. kind of like when you're reading a fairy tale, you're not trying to, well, how does this work? How does the magic work? That's not the point. The point is that it's an allegory. Right. So that's fine. I didn't mind that. What I did mind was the fact that you had this premise of, okay, like, what do you do? And the answer is, I don't know. Because she doesn't know. Because what do you do? Augie just dies. Okay. And then the people... A couple of them are going to stay up on the space station to die alone, together and then alone. And the other people have decided to go and land on the planet because they're really curious and they want to know what happened. Well, I thought that was a really interesting change because it kind of comes out to the same meaning, even though they have absolutely opposite endings, the book yes. and the movie. Okay, okay, but before we talk about the ending of the movie, let's stick with the book, because yeah. I have a lot more to say about the book. So, yeah, I just felt like the ending, I it was supposed to be hopeful, maybe, that Harper and Sully were, like, finally going to get together or something, but I don't know, my God. Like, after so long, not acting on their feelings to, I, that's a lot of pressure, and it just, it didn't feel like it was a proper enough setup for that, and I, you know, usually you want action in your books. You want things to happen. And it feels like this book ended right before the action, right before they landed. And then they're going to have to figure stuff out or build a new world or, you know, die or whatever it is that they're going to do. We don't know what they're going to do. We don't get to know. And it didn't feel like the point was, isn't that interesting that we don't know? It felt like the point was, oh, I've hit my 200 plus pages and I don't really have an answer. I didn't really think this through. So I'm going to end it now and call it profound. And I didn't like it. I have a slightly different take where it really doesn't matter what happens at the end because this is all about, you know, being alone <laughs> and the human condition. And so I have to take it on that level. What actually happens to the Earth isn't relevant. It's just the thing that happens. So what happens to the characters afterwards isn't so much relevant as it is the internal changes that you go through. So it, it felt like like a therapy session that 
goes on really, really long, and you're listening to somebody's dream, and it has all these different tangents, and you're getting lost, going, can can you summarize this somewhere <laughs> here? Because I, I get what you're trying to do, but Jesus, I, I don't need to know that your house was in a tree, but it can't fit in the tree. You know those weird dreams that people have? So do you feel like they changed? Yes. Okay, so tell me more about how you felt Sully changed in the, over the course of this book. So... I kind of harken back to a discussion I had with a person who joined the Navy, and he did so because he didn't know his father very well. His father was still alive, but they had no connection. Uh, and he joined the Navy so that way he could understand this person. Because his father had been in the Navy? Yeah, okay. so his father was career Navy. And that's how it turned out, is that they could have the shared experience. They should have had the communication, but because they didn't have the communication, they had the shared experience, and that's brought them closer together if that makes sense. There's a lot of instances where a shared experience kind of shortcuts a lot of... Okay, I get you. Connect it to Sully. So with Sully, I see her as being kind of a victim of her father in a lot of ways, where she never really learned how to connect with people because he never had that connection with people. At the end, that's the change. I'm sorry, I just... She never connected with her father because he never connected with people, and then... And at the end, that's kind of that moment when they connect through this distance you know she's in space he's on earth but she doesn't know that he's her father in the movie they do in the book right, they don't but that's not the point i think it's coincidence that's that's fucking around a little too much but the point is that you can make mistakes because the whole time they're both thinking about their past how they would change it the mistakes they made the regrets they have and that you can overcome your mistakes you can start making different decisions and so it's the transformative moment at the end that's the whole point of it is that you know you're going through a therapy session and the therapy is the transformation at the end what you do with your life afterwards is kind of its own thing the the point was coming to this conclusion okay so i disagree because i don't feel like anybody got overcame anything and I don't see a transition, a transformational moment. They, it wasn't like they connected to each other. I don't feel like Sully is now suddenly going to make different life choices because she had a, a radio conversation with a quote unquote stranger. In fact, Sully's not going to have much of a life or life choices at all. Neither will Augie. So like, it's one thing to like navel gaze and be like, damn, I fucked up my life. But 200 pages later, if you're like, yep, I did. I fucked up my life. And now I'm, and uh, oh, well, life is over. It doesn't feel like there has that second step. I, I, I get what you're saying because you never see that. You know, that's the bookends. And so what choices do they have that's left? You know, he's going to die. That's what's going to happen. You have the transformative moment. And unless there's, I'm thinking that unless you see that transformation actually do something, it doesn't really exist. Well, it's kind of like if somebody's a shitty person and then they're like, I'm sorry for being a shitty person, but then they don't stop being shitty. You don't believe their apology and then they die. And we never find out if that apology was sincere because they mended their ways, changed their lives, made better choices, made restitution, or if they just said that because whatever. And in this case, nobody actually says that. They just think it. Wow, my life was really crappy, says Augie right before he dies. And Sully's like, yeah, my life was hard. But she's not like thinking of it in a I'm introspectively thinking about my life because I need to make changes for my life. She's literally thinking about her life because she literally has nothing else to do. Um, for me, I would say, you know, this is and the author does liken this to her grandfather in an interview where her grandfather was this alcoholic, made a lot of mistakes, and then the 
second half of his life, he was in recovery. So putting it onto that, I can see that perspective of what she's trying to get across is that this is the moment. And then once you have that moment, you don't need to go further. It's a little bit like, um, I well, would then she say... should have written about her grandfather and not about mythological people who didn't actually do anything. <laughs> because it, that interview sounds fascinating and interesting. And we can all think about people in our lives or people in ourselves, you know, moments of our own life where we're like, we, I make a change, I learn, I grow, I, ch you know, blah, blah, blah. But these characters don't learn and grow. They, they navel gaze and then they die. I'm going to kind of make this comparison of it reminds me of the of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, and you have that space between God and man when God is about to touch man, and it's this very tiny little bit of negative space, but it's an important negative space when you're just about to have the transformation. So with this, I see it as you have that transformative moment, and that's the whole point. You don't need to go on beyond that. Okay, how do you define transformative moment? Because maybe I have a different definition. Because I feel like you don't have a, a transformative moment unless you have something on both sides. Well, yeah, so you want to have the change, which I respect. I don't like this novel, and so I'm not trying to defend it. I'm just saying this is what I see the author trying to do. Trying is the key word here, I think. Yes. <laughs> I think that this was an attempt to show characters thinking about their life, changing at the very end and once you have that moment of i screwed up but i'm forgivable i can connect to my own self then you can move on and i will agree with most of what you said except i don't believe that they changed or are making different life choices in the future because well one of them doesn't have a future and the other i didn't feel like that was what she was doing but okay I mean, maybe if she had like gone to Harper before they started landing and been like, you know what? Knowing that there's only one dude out there and he's going to die alone because we can't get to him. And also like, blah, 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 blah. And I just have to say, let's do it, Harper. Let's let's throw caution to the wind and have ourselves some sex right here, right now. Or like, let me just tell you that I like you as more than a commander. But no, she doesn't do that. She doesn't change. She does nothing. The, it, the only person who actually changes at all, maybe, is Harper. Because he's the one who's like, Iris, I'm going to use your actual first name instead of your last name. I'm changing the rules from this professional setting into a more personal setting. But we are not in Harper's brain for 200 pages with his obsessive about his past life. If we had been, if Harper was the one who'd been like, man, I have a hard time connecting to people. I'm super professional all the time and I keep people at arm's length and I can't get over myself because I had a crappy childhood and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, he's like, I'm going to like purposely try and I'm not going to call her specialist Sullivan. I'm going to say Iris and maybe I'm going to reach out and touch her hand. Like, okay. That's a transformative moment because you have something on the other side. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. Yeah. She, if, if it was her saying something different, whatever that would be, that would, that would be work. An illustration of that. Yeah. But she's not the one who does it. She just sits there. <laughs> I would like to say also that this novel has the same name as another novel. Yes. That novel is a depressing novel about people who can't make who who gets stuck right isn't that the whole point of that novel um it is also a floatiness so they mentioned j alfred proofrock which it would actually fit really well with the novel that we read if she made more of a connection to something like that right and then the the title from both novels comes from an emily dickinson poem which i think i think that dalton here brooks dalton 
ignored the 1939 novel and was just thinking about the Dickinson poem. I'm going to read. This is a dramatic reading of Dickinson by Kalia. Good morning, midnight. I'm coming home. Day got tired of me. How could I of him? Sunshine was a sweet place I liked to stay, but morn didn't want me now. So good night, day. Dickinson poem. Some of her poems are great. Some of them are, I have to wonder. I think a lot of people do. If they are great because it's hers, and if somebody else like submitted, I feel like if somebody else submitted this poem to to anything and anywhere, they'd be like, "Uh, thanks. Our next submission window is next year." So fine, whatever. So this is it. I think that it sounds cool. Good morning, midnight, because that sounds fun. But I just it the title. T- <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, and this this gets me to one of my main complaints about the book, okay? Everything else has been quibbles. Yes. This is my main complaint. In storytelling, we have a couple of recurrent tropes of how there's conflict, okay? Some stories don't have conflict. It's a vignette. It's to showcase something. Fine. But if you're going to have a story that has like a climax and a resolution or just a climax if it's horror or this, um, whatever, fine. You're going to have conflict right conflict is what moves novels along your conflict is like man versus man man versus nature man versus machine man versus man versus his own existential lack of animal you know nature whatever okay so in this book what do we have huh well i wrote it down first off man versus the elements or man versus nature this book could have been that it wasn't Fine, maybe that's not what she wanted. She didn't want it to be man versus nature. But she freaking put them in the Arctic and in space. And that is all man versus nature. Like, space is scary. The Arctic is cold. There's ice. But you know what? Augie was never in danger of the ice or the cold. Like, he left one completely stocked and safe security place and then went to another safe and security place, right? There was not really a fear of running out of food. There was not a fear of running out of warmth. Nobody was going to freeze. It was cold. It was problematic. But like he was safe. And okay, so we take the bite away from the Arctic. So basically the Arctic's only there to make him be alone. He could have literally been in a bunker, right? So why does it need to be in the Arctic? Why? 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 Because it's symbolic. It's like a polar bear. There is no polar bear. The bear was just in him because it's loneliness <laughs> but you can be lonely anywhere and in the hands of a good writer you can be lonely anywhere then we have space which is scary it's really scary and she did a better job of making space scary like Devi actually dies like that's a big thing right space is scary it literally wants to kill you and again they're not scared they're sad that Devi dies they're like traumatized by watching her die and they're really scared about what they're going to find when they get to earth and what it means when earth isn't but they're not really scared of space now maybe that's an astronaut thing maybe if i was an astronaut i wouldn't be scared of space either but i've read other things by astronauts and they're like you have to be scared of space because space wants to kill you so okay fine 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 you say this book is not man versus nature okay fine is it man versus man no is it man versus animals no is it man versus machine no is it man versus self maybe but if it's gonna have a conflict then you have to actually have like 
a conflict, which the very idea implies climax. It just, it means introspective, like thought process or coming out on the other side, or like you want to keep saying a transformational moment. And I just don't feel like Augie transforms or changes. So him and his memory kind of, but then there's no, it's just, so there's no real conflict here. And when I complained about this in book club, somebody was like, it's a character study. And I'm like, right. But the way that we understand who characters are and why it matters is by seeing what they do in conflict or by seeing how they react to situations. And so it's, this is like a, this is like a short story vignette that is way too long, right? Because me going outside and picking up the mail and coming back inside, there's no conflict but you can learn a lot about the way I do it, I suppose, because it's a character study. But you don't need 200 pages of me walking outside and getting the mail, right? <laughs> so that's why I say I, I kind of get what she's trying to do. I get the symbolism involved. It's just not well done. And we are so distinctly in the minority on this. Then George Clooney comes along and is like, you know what would make a really great movie because my last couple movies haven't done so great? This. And I'm... It's so sad because I love George Clooney. I will watch George Clooney do anything, anything and everything. I will watch everything he directs. He is amazing. I don't know why he decided to do this. And I just don't, I mean, maybe because it was ambitious, because it was going to have to be Arctic and it was going to have to be space. And like the direction is good. The acting is fine. He's great. Everybody else is fine. The special effects are fine good, whatever, okay. But you can't get away from the dud of the story, even when they try to fix it by making some changes. So let's talk about those changes, shall we? So one of them was kind of accidental, and that was that the lead was pregnant. Yes. <laughs> and so as they were just going to try to film around it, and it's like, well, it became the pregnant belly of the room. So they said, okay, we'll just lean into it. She's pregnant. That's a change in the theme. And it works so much better because then you have like potential life coming and that is... I mean, it could so have worked better. This woman did not seem at all maternal. Yes. At all. Like there wasn't a discussion about I'm carrying the last child or the last child that's going to be born or like this is a huge responsibility. Like none of that was even touched on. She was pregnant. It's like children of men, but without any heart. Like it was, it was like, oh, she's pregnant. Let's talk about baby names, but not actually talk about the pregnancy, the fact that she's sleeping with her commander, obviously, or the fact that this is dangerous, or the fact that it might have long-term repercussions, or like anything else. Like it's just, and it, so it clearly, I, I, before I read that it had to be added because the actress was pregnant, I was like, why did they make this choice? It is so not explored it's just literally tacked on well that's why because it was literally tacked on she's pregnant but she's not like hugely pregnant can we acknowledge here that she carries that i'm not sure how long she's supposed to be 20 weeks is usually when you find out the gender um based on ultrasounds and it wasn't an ultrasound machine it was some other machine so i don't know but that they were able to tell so she's at least 20 weeks but she's not huge like i feel like if they had padded her we probably would not have known. She could have just worn a bulkier uniform and we would not have known and it would have been okay. 
I mean, most of her exciting scenes are outside in the the spacewalk suit. So yeah, this this movie had actual danger. In yes, it. but had nothing to do with the pregnancy. Yeah. I'm just saying, like before we move off the pregnancy, I thought that it was just unnecessary and it didn't add anything. And I don't know why they just. I think if you gave a screenwriter a good three days, they could have made some profound changes. Yeah, yeah. Profound is not like major, but like profound is in actually bringing this something. into something. Yeah. Well, like she could have even like that. She never even like put her hand on her stomach when she was walking around and stuff. Like I, she just didn't seem like a pregnant person, even though the actor was uh, was actually. Pre- I don't know, man. It was just it felt weird. like if you could have added dream about it, you know, a something. Because we are in her yes. just like an added scene. Anything. And you're right. You know, or some like more... just touching her stomach and looking down once, cliche as it is, would have been a thing. Right. Like when they saw the scorched earth, if she had put her hand on her stomach. Something like that to understand the brevity of the situation. Also, I don't know why we had to pretend like we were it's gonna be a mystery about who the dad is. Right? Why did we even have that lengthened out? And then they weren't together, but they were together, but like not sleeping together, but they didn't seem like they were acting any differently towards each other than she was acting towards anybody else. So then you're like, was this a one night stand? He seems okay with it. Does he have a family on earth? Does she? I mean, she obviously has a mom, but like, I mean, I don't know. So that was another big change. They took away her, most of her backstory. Okay? Like she had a mom, but... In the book, we have Sully has this marriage that fell apart. Sully has this child that she has no contact with, which is the parallel to her own father's relationship with her. But we don't have that in the movie. All we have is she's in space and she's pregnant. Kind of. Sort of. It was frustrating. So the changes that they made to the characters, I found very bothersome. So this is something that we've talked about before. In the book, it's all very internal. So her last chapter has that moment of her thinking about okay you know we're, we're going forth and we're doing this thing which is really hard to translate to a movie but there really is nothing going on that you can tell it's it's you have to intuit everything yeah and that's why there's things like narration and diary logs and i don't know conversation so another big change based on the the, the character changes they change augie by making him not just this astronomer, but this astrophysicist guy who had discovered the planet that then they're going to. And the planet is very different. It's not just a Jupiter moon that they're just getting information about, but they like literally went there and got soil samples. It's a new planet for the human race. And I was like, well, that's a that's a really big, fundamentally big change. Yeah, it completely changes the ending. I mean, not just the ending. It changes everything. It changes who Augie is because it makes him more hopeful because he was trying to find another planet for Earth, like for Earth, for humans, you know what I mean? Instead of just losing himself in the mysteries of the sky, it changes the fact that he kept, because that was his planet that he had discovered, of course he's keeping track of who's uh, in space. Of course he's keeping track of who's on that spaceship. Of course he knows who she is and he knows who she is already because she has the same you know, name as her mom. Like he knew that the woman had had a child. Like he knows her the whole way through. So like the one change of making him be the, like this astrophysicist, like planet guy changes everything about Augie. And then yes, obviously changes the end because now they have somewhere else to go besides the space station and earth. But that that's, that's a whole other issue. It fundamentally makes Augie more interesting and 
it it lends itself to the showing up of the the hallucination iris he doesn't hallucinate her until he sees grown-up iris is sullivan on the ship when he sees the little roster then she shows up the little hallucination in the book he found the hallucination iris like three days after everybody had left or not even three days. It was like two days later. Like she was real fast. His brain was like, you need something to do because otherwise you're going to go insane. And so his brain gave him a hallucination in the movie. It was very clear. Like it triggered him by seeing, Oh my God, that's my daughter up there. And the last time I saw my daughter, she was eight years old. So now my brain is going to create this eight year old version of my daughter for me to interact with. Right. I mean, everything changed by making him be this guy who discovered this planet and it's just it's it's almost like a completely different character and a very different movie with some of the same trappings from the novel right a little bit of the same premise and then just off in its own direction it lets everything fall like all the pieces to fall into place in Mm -hmm. a much smoother way yes so I liked it. That's a change that I liked. I, I don't know if I'm making it clear. Maybe it, it, my, my voice sounds, I have resting bitch voice. <laughs> I liked that change because it did. It tied things together in a way that made it better. And it wasn't trying to trick us. Like it wasn't being subtle. She looked, they looked so much alike, you know? It wasn't like he had a daughter who was blonde and then grew up and was brunette in their 20s. And you know what I mean? Like a lot of kids don't have the same exact features when they grow up. But the casting was really good. Child Iris and adult Iris Sully look a lot alike. So it begs the question, do we really need the mystery in the novel? No. Because it's not much of a mystery. But it's it's treated like this big revelation of, oh, wait, that was just... And as I said, like, like you and I both figured this out pretty early because, I mean, it's... Obvious. Yes. I think that in the novel, it was there to be an extra layer of tragedy. It's not just sad. It's extra sad because missed opportunity. They could, If they had only spoken and like said the right words to one another, they wouldn't be ships passing in the night, blah, 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 blah. But I didn't like Augie enough to want him to have any kind of character yeah. resolution in the book. And it just kind of felt like you're just trying to be emotionally manipulative. I liked it much better in the movie where it was very clear why he was hallucinating, what he was hallucinating, and how it all fit together. I thought that was just much better done. According to the author, originally she had Augustine understand that he was talking to his daughter, even though the daughter didn't quite understand it. Uh, And then later on she changed it so that it doesn't matter if they do or don't. At least to her way of thinking, it isn't about if they make that connection that they are related. Yeah, the connection is made for the reader. Irony. So dramatic. So, but the thing is, by saving it until literally four sentences from the very end gives it emotional weight and it doesn't deserve that emotional weight and and so i found that just cheap in the, in the book why why is it there it's just there to be so that the, somebody it's emotionally manipulative yeah and I, I hate that shit so boo boo on that other changes the radiation on the planet in the book like i said augie wasn't really in any danger it, it didn't talk about radiation he wasn't overly concerned yeah so He's getting sick in the book, but in the book there's like rumors of war, but it's still very much a mystery in this. It's the planet's basically nuked. But that's not what happens in the book. The book is not, you know, the planet's dying. Animals are doing great. Yes. It's humans are dying. Exactly. Again, so the movie decided to answer that question of what happened. I don't like it. 
I told, I didn't, it, because we didn't need it in the, it, we didn't need it. And the thing that they say happened, the, the nuclear stuff, it seems like it's trying to make some kind of political point. You know, Augie's like, we didn't do a good job. We messed up. It was a mistake, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, okay, sure. But also what, what that, because they made it nuclear, they did one other thing. They had Coach Taylor's wife able to send him a message quote unquote, 10 days ago, okay? Which means that as of 10 days ago, after they, they, they've been silent for three weeks at the start, we don't know exactly how long between the start of the movie and when they get back to Earth, but it's been a while, like a couple of weeks at least. Her pregnancy does not seem to get much further along, so apparently it's not too much further, but they have to go through the dead space part of space and some time has passed, right? Okay. But now 10 days, so sometime during that passage between we haven't had any contact for three weeks and today, this message was sent 10 days ago where she's like, our kids are getting sick. I'm being moved to an undisclosed location. And you're like, okay, if they were able to send that message 10 days ago, it cannot be the only message. NASA or whoever wouldn't allow one person to send one message to one person on the spaceship. There would have been other messages, but we as the audience don't get to see those messages. NASA telling Commander Ade, look, we're all going underground because of this or that or the other. So it's like purposely not giving us information that the characters would have had. So there's stuff underground. Somebody was alive at least 10 days ago. Somebody's being kept alive somewhere. So there, there is hope for the people going down to the planet because they could potentially get there or find those people. But Ade and, and Sullivan aren't going to do that. And we're not exactly sure why. Well, it takes away, you have this idea of isolation because there is no humans and you don't know why. When the ship's coming back, they're like, there's just nothing. We don't know what's going on. And it's just dark. Like all the lights are off. In the movie, like the earth is scorched. They can tell stuff happen. In the book, it's just dark, which also, you know, strains a little bit of credulity because there's a lot of power systems that are, I mean, you'd have to have some EMFs. Even if everybody just died tomorrow, like a lot of lights would stay on for a long time mm-hmm. before they would all, you know. So, okay, fine. Um, that's why in my recap, I said maybe it's zombies because we don't know, right? <laughs> it could be zombies down there. I will say I really love the visual in the movie of one of the other guys who has a family, him holding, sort of trying to hold the, the shadow of his wife's hand and that that attempt for connection that they had they had an emotional connection and so the physical connection trying to attempt that and not being able to i thought it was a very pretty scene coach taylor coach taylor holding like reaching out in the vr dude they have a holodeck on this spaceship really <laughs> okay 2049 30 Future. years have got it good to know so yeah i just thought that was a really pretty scene that emphasizes that issue of connection and right. isolation yeah, and and the need for it and it, how it was obviously built in that they knew that these people would be getting lonely. So they had built in this like weird VR pseudo thing where you could kind of be near your family, but not. And like, it's all on a loop, you know, so you can listen to your family's chit chat. That's cool. It's a cool little bit of tech. It kind of helped them make them feel lonely, but it, it also like it was a lot of I, I don't I don't know it. I think if we had... Uh, it's heartbreaking to see that he wants the connection. Yes, he had the connection. Because he's the family he man. I feel like it would have been interesting to see who everybody had. Like, who was Sanchez's VR family group? You know? Who was Ade's? 
like who is Sullivan's? Our t- our main characters over there, th- we don't see that. So all we really get and so to me it felt like a tool to give us a little bit of information about these side characters except that all it really did was reinforce the like very paint by numbers superficial two-dimensional characterization of those characters to begin with who's coach taylor he's the family man everything he has to do does with family (laughs) it's family is it family it's coach taylor and he's the family man you know that's that's his entire personality so if you're going to fix the script (sighs) that's not my job would you have like everybody get like a you know a little hologram where it has a little bit more depth and then like sully's the only one who doesn't because she doesn't have any connections back home well i mean does she not have any connections back home because again like that's a big change well if you're talking about like she's isolated and she doesn't make those connections that she carries this legacy from her now see that's book sully movie sully we have no knowledge we have no idea if she's got a good relationship with her mom because nobody tells us we have no idea if she's got a good relationship with friends family other people down there on earth because nobody bothers to tell us literally all we know about sully is that her mom was blonde she's an astronaut she's pregnant um yeah sully is very much a blank page and i would say that's true in the book as oh, well there's almost nothing well to we get her. more about her history in the book we do get and yeah there's more but she's just so bland well she is bland but just because you're a basic bitch doesn't mean you're not a bitch worth loving jennifer says one basic <laughs> bitch to another no like in the book we got a thing about her her failed marriage and we, we saw that relationship like this father that she didn't know and her mom was like a genius and like had moved moved them around a lot so like we got a lot more in the movie we got no character development of sully and part of that is because it's a movie not a book so it's hard you know it is hard to give everybody character development but we've seen it happen. We've seen movies where there are characters that are developed. So this movie didn't have that. We got a little bit of Augie, but those flashbacks, can we talk about the flashbacks? Can we talk about the weirdness of somebody else playing young George Clooney? Yeah, it's we have the technology to make George Clooney look like young George Clooney. But no, we're not doing that. Yeah, I, I felt that was really weird. It was very strange. And then... To just make it even more uncanny valley, they mixed George Clooney's today voice with the actor's voice to create past young George Clooney's voice in the movie so that... It is a Frankenstein monster it of is Clooney. not okay. Like, it's just... It's just wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. And I feel bad for that actor. You're probably a cool actor on and of yourself, but playing the young version of somebody else, like, I just... So for like the first five minutes, my head was kept to the side with one ear up and one ear down. Going, what? Why, yes. why am I hearing a George Clooney voice? But that's not George Clooney. Not- yes. <laughs> I'm going to pause what? this and look really. No, totally not. Not, not, not. And okay, it would be different if none of us knew what George Clooney looked like when he was younger. Right? Because, you know, maybe you could like stretch your brain. But we all saw ER. <laughs> I was going to go back further and say, I saw, oh, Facts, facts of, of life. life. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we have Facts of Life, long-haired George Clooney. We have ER, Dr. Ross. <laughs> <laughs> we have freaking Batman and Robin. We have young George Clooney or whatever Batman movie he was in. He was in one of the Batman movies. Okay. Yeah. So it was weird. I It was, and none of those flashbacks were necessary. I mean, 
they were necessary because we were not being subtle with the connection, but like they really didn't give us too much about his personality. It just kind of laid in the groundwork for the thing. So, ugh. I'm I'm going to make a mention here. Yeah. It, for anyone who watches Up, you know, there it's three minutes. It's like three to five minutes of a very short scene in the beginning that shows this man's whole life and they do so much character. It is heartbreaking and you can do that in five minutes. Yeah. It is not impossible to have really, really, really good character development in a short amount of time and this is just bland. It's... Yeah. It's like all the ingredients of a good movie. You've got a good actor. You've got a good director. You've got some good set pieces. You've got some good, you got a good, decent sized budget, obviously. But when you start with a bad story, <laughs> even when you fix certain aspects of it, I, I feel like that's why this doesn't work. And a lot of people I'm seeing online are like, I don't know why this movie's so bad, but it is. And I'm like, you know why it's bad? It's because it's based on a bad book and none of you all want to admit it. <laughs> uh, the, but, the risks in the movie did feel bigger. Okay? But it's so well paced. I keep saying the same compliments over and over. No, it's, 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 it's this beautiful mosaic. And it, yeah, I, I wonder if this is one of those books that 10 years later from now, everyone's going to go, yeah, that really wasn't that great a novel. I don't know why we went in for the hype. Yeah, well, maybe we're just early on that thing. I will say another thing about the movie that I appreciated was that they did ratchet up the tension. We had yes. actual, like, the space stuff was scary. Now, granted, the first time something happened in space, they got off course, and we don't really know why. It's not explained. We just got off course. We got bumped or something. We don't know. It doesn't matter. Fine. Okay. So we're off course. We have to recalibrate. We're going to go through the danger zone. Danger zone. Fine. And so then there's, like, all these ice storms and stuff, which sure i guess there's not ice anywhere else just in this one zone fine fine i don't know i'm not an astrophysicist but then it was actually scary when they're out there and they're doing the things and because i'd read the book i was like she's gonna die she's gonna die she's gonna die and then they were like she got stabbed and i was like oh that's a different kind of death and they brought oh, her yeah, in the blood flowing in the air it was Ooh, pretty horrifying the gravity of the blood yeah that was that was well done, is what I will say. Compelling and well done. And space seemed scary. It actually did. And when we saw how how big the ship was, but then also how tiny it was compared to everything else, it was it was a good thing. I think I mean I watched it on Netflix, so or not yeah, I watched it on Netflix. It came out on Netflix. Some people will get to see it in the big screen because there was a limited release of that, and someday they might actually show it again in movies when we can all go back to movie theaters if that ever becomes a thing again. But it'll be really fun to see it on the big screen. But space felt more scary, and the journey felt more scary for Augie and Iris. Okay, a few things. One, you can't take this mask off. You can't take this mask off. We're driving on the snowmobile. The very next scene is, oh, the air here is fine. Go ahead and take your mask off. And I was like, dude, either lean into it that it's dangerous or not, but fine, whatever. Okay, so then, yes, he's in the water. That's scary. Also, super unbelievable that he did not die. Um, she gets lost in the snowstorm. That's a little scary. Like that, it, it clearly makes it. You know, she's obviously not there. But whatever. You know, the, the the wolf just walking behind them at one point. It was a little like, oh god, there's wolves now. Like there was a lot of stuff, and it 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 had more of that danger element to it. I'm giving it tiny props for that, for trying to ratchet up the tension. Although I'll say, like his whole thing was. Okay, the air is getting dangerous here, so we have to move. But what he he didn't say, it's getting dangerous here, we have to move. He's like, we have to get there to warn them off. I'm sorry, 
they are in a spaceship. When they get to Earth, they will see what Earth looks like. They will know. I'm not sure of him telling them in, in clips and fits and starts that he's sorry and something happened actually affected their decision to do anything. It was Coach Taylor's wife's video and what they could see out of the screen that helped them determine whether they were going to go back to Jupiter's moon or stay. Augie did nothing. And that, to me, is the fatal flaw in both of these. It didn't matter. What he did didn't matter. And I find that very frustrating and sad. And if that was the point, if the point is that what we do doesn't actually matter, we can think that something's super important, we can quote unquote put ourselves in danger trying to get something done or get somewhere to do a thing, and it ultimately doesn't matter. Like that is a fucking sad, sad thing. And I know I'm skipping, but like it's 2020. This has been a bummer year. And I don't need to watch a movie that's going to literally just bum me the fuck out and tell me that nothing I do matters and we're all going to die anyways. Time and place, man. George Clooney, you let this movie come out in December of 2020. And if it ended on a hopeful note, we could say, yes, 2020 was bad and we're going to move forward with renewed hope. But it's not hopeful. They're going to go die on a new planet. She might die in childbirth. If they both live, if their child lives, they're eventually going to die. And then their daughter is going to literally be completely alone and die alone on another planet. Not only that, she would anyway, just because, you know, you're just having two people. There's nobody else on that other planet. You're not going to restart civilization. I mean, we could have taken sperm samples from Sanchez and Coach Taylor and maybe, like, I don't know, harvested Maya's body for eggs or something. But no, 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 because that's graphic and icky and people think I'm a weirdo for suggesting it. No, no. And no matter what, it would still be weird, incest, crazy. Yes. It's you, not. You would have serious issues. It's not a hopeful ending. It's a bummer ending and nothing Augie did mattered. And nothing that they did mattered. And all of that data that they collected means nothing in the book. Mm-hmm. And all and the fact that there's a better planet out there means nothing in the movie because they're not going to take people. It's not like, like, I don't know, maybe they stay in orbit for a while. If they have enough fuel and food to go all the way back on a two-year mission, then they have enough to orbit for two years and maybe take some people off the planet and take them to the new planet. But no, no, we're not doing that. It is a bummer. Both of these things are a bummer, and I don't want to be bummed out right now, and I'm bitter about being bummed. The defense of Clooney and the um, movie makers. Movies are made a long time before they're actually released. You know, there's a whole long post-production thing. So that was, well, you know, you're talking about, well, 2020 was a bummer. Oh, they can't predict that. No, but they chose to release it in December. They could have saved it and released it in February or March or April or May or June of next year. Nobody made them release it. In December. The only reason to release a movie in December like this is because you won an Oscar. And I'm sorry, this movie is not worthy of an Oscar. Harumph. So I, I get sort of that frustration that you have of <sighs> nothing that you do matters because it, it's just all terrible. Yeah, let's live in that world for a while. <laughs> So I know I've, I've basically said it, but was this book and movie worth my time? Book, pass. It was boring. It was not beautifully written because that just describes pretty things in detail like a lot. 
Character study can't just be an info dump about characters. It did not work for me, not the first time, and not the second time. The movie is better, but still not great. We saw what happened if you needed that, but ultimately it was a movie about people dying slowly. It was a bummer. It didn't teach me anything. Having regrets is all well and good, but if you don't get the chance to actually do anything about them, what's the point? What is the point? What is the point? There's no point to either of these things. What did we learn? What did we feel? Why did we care about any of them? I didn't care about any of them. It was directed well. Like I said, I would watch George Clooney do almost anything. I believe him in almost anything and in forever. The human touches and the Aether crew with the baby names and the singing were great. They were not in the book. It ends on such a bummer note, though. It's such a bummer concept. Again, if the world right now was puppies and chocolate fountains, I could take a break from being happy and be like, yo, I want to bum myself out now and have a good cry. But right now, no. It didn't matter that he did anything. Nothing mattered. The end. Was it worth your time, Jennifer? No. No, and as I was going through the novel again, it was like it was, felt like it was even less worth my time rereading it. The whole time I was reading the novel, I was questioning why are we having this detail when it's not really part of what you're trying to say. This isn't meant to be part of the story. It's just like this added detail. And so as a novella, it might have been better. And that's about all I can say is no, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. It, it was frustrating and long and dull and doesn't focus on the right things isn't telling us the story it wants to. It's got ambitions, but it's failing terribly. And the movie? Was the movie worth your time? Uh, if I played it at, you know, twice the speed. <laughs> so, I don't know. It, it was, it just felt like, wow, that was two hours of my life that is gone. That's how I felt. I, I didn't learn anything. I didn't get anything new out of it. It didn't bring something fresh. It, it, it was just a lot of meh. I really hated the end where we're just going to stay the camera as a steady cam on the two of them. They're like, yep, I guess it's just us. And then it backs up a little bit and you think maybe we're going to go outside the ship and get to see the ship one more time or see this tiny speck in the cosmos of the universe. But no, no, the camera just holds still and they both like, I don't know, play Tetris on the computer screen pad in front of them for like five minutes. And then he gets up and wanders off and she just keeps touching buttons looking at things, touching buttons, and then she eventually just gets up and wanders off too. And it's like, these are not two people in love. These are not two people who are optimistic. These are not two people who are depressed. These are two people who are literally like, I'm going to sit here for 45 seconds and touch like the little things on my screen until the director motions for me to leave the frame. Completely indifferent. That is what yeah. I'm doing. It is a bunch the of end. indifference from an indifferent film. There's no heart. And, you yeah. had, and that's what I mean. You had the moments. Like the Sweet Caroline moment. It was kind of cute. It was a little hokey. And honestly, Maya should have gotten stabbed in the middle of that song. Because then you would have had that justification of, of life being ups and downs. And like you have these moments where you're happy and then something tragic happens. But nope. Okay. Well, that is our episode. <laughs> Kalia, I am going to force you to pick something you like for the next book and movie. Because we've had a lot of, you know, we really do like books. We we do. We love books. And we enjoy movies. You, you can't tell by listening to this podcast. I really liked the um, 2017 Christmas Story Live <laughs> musical <laughs> production. And I know you didn't. But if our listeners want to listen to me gush and say amazingly wonderful things about something, that is a supplemental episode you should totally check out. Uh, and you can do so by being one of our patrons. Um, because we record super out of order the next 
episode is something, I promise. I promise, listeners, you will not hear Jennifer's beautiful voice. You will hear mine and my guest host, and I love it. And I I am deeply in love. Plug. Give us a preview. The next episode that will come out will be Ella, my daughter, discussing Charlotte's Web. I love that one. She wrote the recap of the book. And we watched the 1973 film. We will be watching the um, more updated version of the live action film and talking about so two movies and one book. So it'll be a very special episode. And uh, Ella is very excited. I love E.B. White. I've read like a number of his short stories as well. So look for that in your podcasting feeds. So, okay. Well, that about sums it up for us today this episode's gonna come out on january 4th so i will say it is a fitting end to 2020 it was just kind of this long meandering torturous year and we had this long meandering torturous book and movie and it's over we're done with it and we can move on but also what we do does matter and you know georgia matters donate to georgia and voting matters. Thank you for, for voting for Biden, all of those of you who did. And so things that we do do matter. And and, and something, I'm going to bring Angel in. I did not bring Star Trek in today, even though this was space and I could have, but I didn't. But I'm going to bring Angel in, which is an offshoot of Buffy and Buffy's Bay. So whatever. Anyways, there is a line in Angel where he talks about how if it doesn't matter what we do, then everything we do matters kind of a thing. Like you can't stop the apocalypse but what matters is what you do in the last moments of the apocalypse is kind of the idea. So like there's always going to be evil in this world, but you can't just give up. You have to keep fighting. And I just I find that really resonant. And that could have been here. It wasn't, but it could have been. And so that's the message that I'm carrying forward into 2021 is what we do matters. Words matter. Actions and power. And we can make the world a better place. Wear your mask. Stay home. <laughs> Get your vaccine. Happy New Year. Oh, and happy birthday to my dad, who is the person, the reason I'm interested in sci-fi anyways. And his birthday was, uh, depending on when you listen to this, well, it either is about to happen or it just happened. So here's a test to see if my dad actually listens to our podcast. Happy birthday, daddy.